Hi, I'm the Contract Tutor, and welcome back to Basic Contract Law for Students. Last episode, we discussed acceptance. The third component in a contract is consideration, and that's what we'll be going over this episode. Consideration requires a bargained-for exchange. The formula is a bargain plus legal benefit to the offeror or legal detriment to the offeree. The thing that's bargained for must be of legal value, so hope doesn't count. A bargain is exchanged legal inducement, so it makes sense that it has to be of legal value. Legal value could be property or money or any number of things. And because it has to be legal, that also means it cannot be illegal. You cannot bargain to give up drinking alcoholic beverages if you're not legally allowed to drink already. So it's like forbearance of a legal right. So for example, a minor cannot have a legal value in giving up drinking because they don't have a legal right to drink. If a 23-year-old was giving it up, that counts because that person has a legal right to drink. Also, if a person has a legal right to do something but chooses not to do that thing, and the person who's contracting with that person doesn't know that they're choosing not to do that, then that can still count. So for example, Steve Rogers is 35 and has a legal right to drink. However, he chooses not to because he doesn't like it. Tony Stark doesn't know this though and offers Steve three grand to refrain from drinking for one month. Steve accepts. Later, Tony finds out that Steve doesn't drink anyway and doesn't want to pay Steve. Steve will win because he could have started drinking at any time during the month. So it was still a legal detriment or forbearance on his part because he could have started at any time. Now there's something called adequacy of consideration. So there's a sufficiency versus adequacy issue we need to talk about. Sufficiency is if there is consideration sufficient to establish a contract. So there's something of value in the eyes of the law. So the sufficiency means that there's consideration, basically. Once sufficiency is established, courts are generally not concerned with the adequacy of consideration. Adequacy means the consideration that was provided is or is not enough. So once again, once sufficiency is established, courts usually don't care about adequacy unless, exception, it is so grossly inadequate as to shock the conscience of the court. Now this doesn't happen very often. You'll almost never see that, which means that Adequacy is going to be a losing defense. So for example, if you sell your $10,000 car for 20 bucks, then that sounds like a you problem. Just because you made that decision and you now don't think that's going to be enough consideration, it's not adequate consideration, the court isn't going to take away your ability to make that decision. There's also something called token or sham consideration. This is indefinite, so it's bargaining with indefinite things, and it's not going to be considered legally sufficient. Now, option contracts, you'll remember from last episode, 
they're going to be an exception in this regard because for option contracts, you can have nominal consideration. So what does not count as consideration? There are four things. First, pre-existing duty. Second, illusory promise. Third, gift. Fourth, past consideration. Now, I think of these, how I remember them, is pig pen. P-I-G and then the P for pen. P, pre-existing duty. I, illusory promises. G, gifts. P, past consideration. So let's start with the pre-existing duty rule. A promise to perform a pre-existing duty owed to the promisor is not sufficient consideration because you're already supposed to do it. So why would I count that for an extra detriment on my part, you know? So for example, a police officer patrols a neighborhood at night to spot jaywalkers. The homeowner tells the police officer that he'll pay him $10 for any jaywalkers he catches during this time. The homeowner is not contractually obligated to give the officer the $10 for every jaywalker because the officer already has a pre-existing duty to catch jaywalkers. That's part of his duties as a police officer. Now, if the homeowner had told him to do it until midnight, and that was outside of the officer's shift, so he's not previously obligated to stay there till midnight, then that would be sufficient consideration because the until midnight would be outside of his regular duties. It would be extra, and thus it would not fall under the pre-existing duty. So be careful when you read these questions to determine if it really is a pre-existing duty or if they're going outside of their pre-existing duty and doing something extra. Now, an exception to the pre-existing duty or when I guess it would just not apply, is when there's a duty owed to a third party. So a promise to perform a duty owed to a third party is considered legally sufficient. For example, a painter and homeowner contract to paint the home. A neighbor thought the homeowner's house was ugly and told the painter that he was so grateful he's going to pay him another extra thousand dollars just to take the eyesore away. This is now a second contract. The painter owed no duty to the neighbor to paint the homeowner's house, but now he does. So he had a pre-existing duty to the homeowner to paint his house, but now he has this second contract where he owes a duty to the neighbor to paint the homeowner's house. So it's like two contracts for the same thing, the same duty. Now, if there's a good faith dispute about the duty, then a promise to perform an existing contractual duty is going to be legally enforceable because there's a good faith dispute. So, for example, contracting to paint a house. The painter doesn't think the garage counts as part of the house, but the homeowner does. So there's a good faith dispute on what counts as the house. Forbearance to sue also amounts to good consideration if the claim is valid. If the claim is invalid, then a good faith belief in the claim will suffice. So a case I read last year talked about three brothers that were going through the process of probating their father's will. One of the brothers got upset for some reason and threatened to sue the other two brothers over something that you could tell was totally frivolous. The eldest brother talked to him 
And the brother that had threatened to sue said that he would forbear his right to sue his brothers if they gave him a larger piece of property. This sufficed for consideration. It didn't matter that the brother's claim was frivolous because he had a good faith belief in his claim. Now, under this pre-existing duty rule, we're also going to mention contract modification. Contract modification under common law requires consideration, but the UCC only requires good faith. So if you're modifying a contract, common law requires consideration, UCC only requires good faith. However, the formation of a contract under the UCC requires consideration, of course. Now, this is a good spot to point out that over the last few episodes, we've talked about common law and UCC a lot. So the first question you should ask yourself in an exam is whether this question is talking about a common law service or something or the UCC because that's going to tell you which body of law to apply. If you don't ask yourself that question, then you might be applying the wrong law and you'll get the question wrong. So be sure to ask yourself, is this common law or UCC for every single question? Next is the supervening difficulties rule. So this is also going to be under contract modification. Supervening means unforeseeable. So it's an unforeseeable difficulty. For example, a contractor unexpectedly hits bedrock and cannot complete the work by the time this restaurant that they're building is supposed to open. The contractor needs more money to get bigger equipment to break the bedrock. And the contractor is going to lose money if he continues to perform at the original price. So they can modify it because of this supervening difficulties rule. So even though he was contractually required to complete it by a specific date, because there's this supervening difficulty that popped up, they're going to be able to modify the contract and he can say, hey, I need some more money so that I can get this equipment to complete the project on time. Next is I in Pigpen. So there's illusory promises. Illusory promises are not sufficient consideration because the promisee is not making a legally binding commitment. It's an empty promise with no commitment. So mutuality of promise is needed for consideration, which means both parties must be bound. You can't have one party bound and not the other. So if I say, wash my car and I'll pay you $50 if I feel like it, that's not going to count. Same with, I promise to buy your house if I feel like it. The buyer, not the seller, is bound in that situation and you have to have both bound. So there are some exceptions. They're called satisfaction clauses. Satisfaction clauses are sufficient consideration, and there's two types. First, there's commercial value or mechanical fitness. So you must act in good faith to determine satisfaction. For the commercial value mechanical fitness one, it's a reasonableness standard, so an objective standard. So you might not be satisfied, but a reasonable person would be. So for example, having your car serviced. You might come back and tell the mechanic shop, I don't like the way you service my car. I'm not satisfied. But the mechanic can say, well, your car runs and I fixed it. So a reasonable person would be satisfied. 
Second is taste and fancy satisfaction clauses. These are subjective. Once again, they're still in good faith though. So it has to be subjective in good faith. So if I'm truly unsatisfied, then I really don't have to pay you. But I can't be lying about it. So if I have you take my wedding photos and I tell you that I hate them and I'm not going to pay you, but then I hang them up around my house, then that's probably going to show that I'm lying. Or paintings. If I have you paint a portrait of me and I say, oh, I absolutely love it, but then my friends say it's not very good, so I tell you I'm not going to pay you. Well, because I really liked it, it's not a satisfaction clause of my friends, it's satisfaction of me. So I really liked it, so I'm going to have to pay you now. Next is gifts. These are not consideration because there is no bargain for exchange. So a conditional gift is where there's no benefit to the offerer despite a possible detriment to the offeree. Conditional gifts are not enforceable as contracts even where the promisee incurs a detriment in attempting to claim the gift. So if I tell you to come to my office and I will give you 20 bucks for lunch, even though you might have that possible detriment of having to come to my office so you're forbearing your time somewhere else, or doing something else, there's no bargain for exchange here. There's no benefit to me, the offerer. Note that permissory estoppel, if it's established here, that may lead to enforcement of a gift promise. Moving on to past or moral consideration. This is generally not regarded as sufficient consideration either. It's not inducing anything, because the offeree already did it. So for example, Randy has been taking care of Dude for the past five years. Dude now tells Randy, I'm going to pay you five grand for taking care of me all these years. Dude has no contractual obligation to do so because Randy's consideration isn't newly provided to gain the five grand. It didn't induce him to take care of Dude because he was already taking care of Dude. Now, there are some exceptions. It's called the moral obligation. The situation in which a moral obligation usually arises is where debt is barred by a technical defense, but the person who owes that debt feels morally obligated to pay it because they feel bad. So the person makes a new promise to pay. However, because the debt is barred, the person can make a promise to pay for less than what the full amount was, and the new contract is only enforceable up to that amount. So there's three moral obligations. There's the statute of limitations, minority, like an age minority, and bankruptcy. So for example, Jane owes Josh three grand. The statute of limitations has run on Josh's claim to be able to collect it from Jane. Later, Jane feels bad that she didn't pay Josh. She tells him she'll pay Josh $1,500, but Jane fails to pay. Josh can now sue Jane for the $1,500. So notice here that Jane promised an amount less than the three grand that she originally owed Josh. She said she'd pay him half of what she actually owed him. Because there's no new consideration and this is an exception, 
the debt can only be enforced up to the amount promised, which is the $1,500. So Josh's claim for the full amount has passed because of the statute of limitations. So now he can only collect on this new amount promised. Sticking with our example, another question that I've seen tested is that Josh can only collect on the amount when it is due. So same facts. Jane promises to pay $1,500 because she feels bad. She tells this to Josh on June 1st. And then she says she's going to pay it on July 1st. So if Jane doesn't pay it still, then Josh can only sue Jane after July 1st, not June 1st, because that's when the debt is supposed to have been paid. So the creditor can only collect on the amount when it is due. That's the rule to remember there. All right, quick run through of everything we've gone over this episode. We defined consideration and gave a formula, which is a bargain plus a legal benefit to the offerer or a legal detriment to the offeree. We discussed sufficiency versus adequacy of consideration. What does not count as consideration? And those are four things. We remember them by pig pen, P-I-G-P, pre-existing duty rule, and some exceptions to that. Illusory promises and its exceptions. We also talked about the gifts and past or moral consideration and its moral obligation exception. I'm the Contract Tutor, and thank you for listening to Basic Contract Law for Students.